especially honored if you're here tonight because I wasn't sure anybody's going to come through uh, whatever that monsoon was. Uh, truly, you fought and you came and you're here, so be proud. Uh, my name is Brian Sorgenfry. I'm the campus minister. I really do love meeting you, so if I've never met you and you've been coming, man, please introduce yourself. I would love to. Uh, all right, what we're doing is this semester we're walking through the book of Leviticus. We're examining uh, the theme that in Leviticus, because this is where God shows up in this thing called the tabernacle in a visible way and draws near to his people in the wilderness. And Leviticus is all about saying God wants to draw near to his people, but that there's all kinds of barriers to that, namely our sin, but that he will overcome anything and everything. And Leviticus 17, where we're starting, there's going to be a little more background tonight, which I'm sorry, but it, this begins what is called, uh, what most people refer to as the holiness code of Leviticus. From chapter 17 to 25 deals with, therefore, how should you live as someone who is God's people if God is near you? Because we just spent over half the semester walking through 1 through 16, which is basically talking about how you are God's chosen people, how you're in his presence, all these regulations about approaching God and, and being near him through forgiveness and through sacrifice. But chapter 17 begins the section on, therefore, how should you live? And it will center around this thing that says, where God says, be holy because I am holy. Okay? But Leviticus 17 begins strangely because Moses, who's the author of Leviticus, communicates God's commands. All right, look, what we're going to cover in the next few weeks is commands about sexuality, partying, like friendship, caring for the poor, all that stuff. But before he does that... He pulls the veil back and says, we've got to talk about idolatry. Idolatry. Which I think sounds strange at first. Except for this. The Bible assumes that what makes you do what you do is what you love. Okay, You do what you do because you love what you love, according to the Bible. But that's not what we think. We think we do what we do because we think what we think. We think right information is what leads me to right living. But all you've got to do is look at mm, like our health patterns to know that's not true. I know the information of what a healthy lifestyle means. If you want to lose weight, here's the information. You burn more calories than you eat. It's pretty simple, actually. That, well, sorry, it's not simple to lose weight. The information is simple. I know the information that sugar ultimately is bad for me. But you know what? I love Sour Patch Kids. And I love M&M's. And so I blaze right through that information and I just do what I want. Because what dictates your behavior is what you love. Which means what dictates your behavior is what you worship. And so Paul begins... I mean, uh, uh, Moses begins this whole section of Leviticus that's going to outline how you live by making you think about idolatry because he knows what really dictates your behavior is what you worship. What do you love? So let me, let me pray for us. Lord, um, many times your word can seem very confusing to us uh, at the least. Uh, that's because we're finite uh, and you are infinite. But also we bring our sin uh, we bring our, our, our uh, self-serving biases, honestly, to your word. 
but would you uh, shine the light of Jesus onto us? Uh, would you help us to see him? Lord, I pray that I would uh, decrease and you would increase, uh, and we would uh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here's Leviticus 17 on the front of your sheet. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, they sacrifice in, in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest, at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel, the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by life, by the life. Therefore I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. The psalmist says that God's word is sweeter than honeycomb. Maybe it'll be that force tonight. All right, three things. Um, first, idolatry leads to death. Second, true worship uh, brings us to reverence life. And lastly, the key to true worship. All right? First, idolatry leads to death, verse 1 through 9. Uh, again, these are more verses in Leviticus that seem bizarre. The Lord says, if you kill an ox, a lamb, or a goat, and do not bring it to the tent of meeting, in other words, the tabernacle, the place where God visibly dwells in the Old Testament with his people, he says, if you don't do that, you will be cut off. You'll be cut off from the community of people. What in the world? Because at first it seems like what God is forbidding is the killing of any animal. But that's not what it's saying. What God is forbidding here is false worship, idolatry. That's why the animals that are stated are so specific, an ox, a lamb, or a goat. Those were the animals that were used in sacrifice, used in offerings, used in worship of the Lord throughout chapters 1 through 16. Also, the word for kill in verse 3, it's the Hebrew word most commonly used for ritual sacrifice. And then it was made explicit in verse 8 through 10 that these are burnt offerings. These are sin offerings. And so God is forbidding sacrifice outside of the tabernacle. He's saying it's idolatry. And I don't know what the word idolatry, what that conjures up in your head. Because I think a lot of times it makes us think about like bowing down to some statue or something like that. It could be that. But idolatry is this. It's simply giving to something else or someone else that which is due to God alone. That's idolatry. Or, to quote my friend, idolatry is fleeing from God by chasing after what is not God as if it were. 
Alright? Idolatry is fleeing from God by chasing after that which is not God as if it were. And so here's the context of Leviticus. This is the specific picture of idolatry that Leviticus wants you to get. That there's an, a sacrifice, an act of worship, and it might even, quote, be to God. But the problem is, it's not in the tent of meeting. It's not in the tabernacle. It's not the place where God visibly dwells. And he says, if, you, if that sacrifice does not end up where I'm visibly dwelling, it's false worship. If it doesn't lead you to the tent of meeting, it is false worship. Now that, that might sound crazy. But what this is saying is that if you are Joe the Israelite, whatever, and you're outside the camp, and you decide to make an offering to the Lord, you decide to worship, and you confess your sins or whatever, and you sacrifice a goat and you offer it to the Lord, you might be doing the actions of worship. But if it doesn't lead you to the tabernacle, the place of, of God's clear manifestation of His presence, God is saying it doesn't matter how that looks. It doesn't matter how it feels. It's false worship. And verse 7, actually, I don't know if this jarred you, he says it's actually demonic. Now, I don't know if you've, uh, if you've ever been to New York uh, where, uh, and been to some of the more uh, touristy sites where you end up interacting with uh, some people who sell watches out of like garbage bags. Have you ever, have you ever found these people? They're kind of awesome. Uh, they, they appear out of nowhere. You don't really know where they come from. And all of a sudden, they, they pull out of these uh, garbage sacks Rolex watches, or what appear to be Rolex watches. And it's pretty amazing because, you know, he lets you hold them, and you're looking at them, and, and they say Rolex, and they kind of feel real, and they look real, they're shiny. And, you know, and the amazing thing is instead of it being, whatever, $400, obviously I don't have it. I don't know how much that costs. Whatever, instead of them usually being $500, the guy says... Here's the deal. I can actually give them to you for 50. And you're like, really? Then you talk him down to like $25 and he gives them to you for $25. And you walk away thinking, I did it. I just got a Rolex for $25. Like what a schmooze, right? But then what you discover is in about mm, two to three weeks, it like stops working or it breaks. Why? Because the difference between what is a fake and real uh, Rolex is actually what's behind the scenes. It's the gears and the quality of the metal and the leather. That's what makes it real. And God in Leviticus is saying, look, it doesn't matter how real the religious activity looks and feels. What makes it authentic is what's going on beside the scenes and where it leads you. And if the worship in Leviticus is not leading you to the tent of meeting, the place where God dwells, any spiritual activity is false worship. Okay, what does that mean for us? You are probably like, yes, exactly, tell me. This is what we've been saying all semester. The tabernacle, because it's the place where God visibly dwells, is a shadow of the clearest expression of God's visible manifestation, which is God made flesh, Jesus, who tabernacled among us. He's the image of the invisible God. Christianity is about Jesus. And if the tabernacle is about the presence of God and Jesus is the presence of God, 
Here's the application. Any worship, any spiritual activity that does not center on and does not lead you to Jesus, God made visible, it's false worship. It doesn't matter how it feels. It doesn't matter how it looks. It's fake. And when you begin to consider that, I think you begin to realize that idolatry is not just something that's out there. And it, like, it runs around in, in all of our hearts. And look, I realize that, I think tonight especially, like if, you're, if you're trying to figure out Christianity or you didn't grow up with the Bible, tonight feels kind of like insider language. I, I hate that. Because I want you to always be able to, even if you don't know anything, to feel like you can come. But Leviticus is kind of confronting the insider with his religious activity. And so what this is saying is, like, ask yourself, for all your spiritual activity, for all your religious rituals, is it leading you to depend on, to rest in and rejoice in Jesus? Because if it's not, it is false worship. No matter how it looks or feels. So, like, what is, like, what is your quiet time ritual? A quiet time's great, but what's the point of it? Because if the activity is not leading to Jesus, the manifestation of God, it's just false. To the extent that your quiet time is a ritual so that you can have a good day, so that you can feel better about yourself, so you don't feel guilty, or so, so some problem gets solved, it is false worship. It's not leading you to embrace and be amazed at the beauty of Jesus. Like, saying a blessing before a meal, it's great. It's actually not commanded, honestly, but it's great if you want to do that. But why are you? Is it just because of the way you're raised? Uh, is it just a, a way to ensure a good day? Because the, the extent that saying a blessing is not engaging Jesus, is not an expression of thankfulness to Him and dependence on Him for everything, including food, then it's just superstition. I, I mean, it, like, I'm trying to get inside our, our weird Christian world, okay? The Christian world can be very weird if you think about it. Like, your prayers before the test, is it so that you believe that Jesus is enough and rest in that? Or is it this kind of voodoo magic that you hope is going to kind of get the grade that you want? Because one is leading to Jesus, the other is doing something else. And this is when, I think I'm going to say some offensive things tonight, okay? I'm for prayer. I'm for prayer all the time, I'm for quiet times, I'm for religious, believe me on this. But this is where the Christian culture is so weird, because we baptize things in all kinds of religious language and justify anything and everything as long as it seems spiritual. Like there will be, there will be Christian or religious events, and here's what we'll say, and I've said this, okay? If one person gets saved, it's worth it. Which means the goal was someone's salvation. And we will justify anything and everything as long as that happens. Even if it abuses people. Even if it guilts and manipulates people. 
which is, ends up being a false representation of Jesus. But the goal is Jesus. Drawing attention to honoring and engaging Jesus. Even if nobody gets saved, it's a good event. Because that's what it's about. And so God in Leviticus 17 is forbidding all acts of worship that do not end in the manifestation of God's presence, which at that time was the tabernacle, but today, on this side of Jesus coming, is worship of Jesus and His beauty. Which leads to the second thing, that true worship actually breeds a reverence for life. See, this is verse 10 through 12. I, I hope, I think this, these dots are hard to connect, I'll admit. But if true worship leads you to Jesus, who is life itself, who is the source of life and the sustainer of life, then maybe that'll make sense in the next few verses. Because in verse 10 through 12, he forbids his people to eat any meat with blood in it. This isn't now, now, now I'm not just talking about sacrificial stuff. He's saying if you hunt wild game or whether it's dead meat you found, verse 12 through 16 talks about this, you have to drain out all the blood. Why? That is weird. (laughs) Well, remember, we've seen this a few times in Leviticus over and over again. That In verse 11 said this, in verse 14, it's not in here, makes this explicit, that because the life life of of a person or an animal is uh, is in the blood. That blood is symbolic for life. The life of every creature is in the blood. So if you lose blood, symbolically you've lost life. And so to eat blood is to be a consumer of life. And it's to be about death. And so God is the great teacher. And what He is doing is saying this. If you worship me, if you find your significance in me who is life, If you begin to draw life from me, because I'm the source of life, I'm the sustainer of all life, you will know I'm opposed to death. I'm opposed to anything that degrades people. I'm opposed to anything that disintegrates life. And so I don't want my people to be about that which degrades life, any sort of consuming life. So don't eat blood, because that symbolizes losing life. And so he sets up that ritual. And again, you know, rituals at first seem weird. But he's setting up a ritual to communicate that all of life is sacred. Because God is pro-life and and, and believes life is sacred. God is the protector and sustainer of all life. And if he's opposed to death and he's opposed to decay, and we are his people, we're supposed to be a respecter of and protector of all life. And God's way of drilling that into their heads in the Old Testament was to forbid eating anything with blood because that was consuming life. And we still have rituals today. We just don't think about them that way. My, my birthday was Monday, okay? And so many of you wish me happy birthday. I turned 37, which I know is old. But here's what happened. I felt very loved on my birthday. You know why? Because certain rituals happened. I walked into the Tridel house for Tridel Bible study. Right, here we go. And, uh, and here's what was waiting for me. A cookie cake. And people sang happy birthday to me. And then my family gave me presents and other things happened. What is all that ritual about? It's communicating, we're glad you're alive. We love you. And here's the odd thing. If none of those rituals happened, you would notice. And you would think, is nobody glad that I'm alive? 
Does nobody love me? Right? You might say it's crazy, but you realize those rituals grill that into you. And God is saying through this ritual, you and I are to be a protector of life. And so the rest of Leviticus is going to talk about sex and partying and money and time. But undergirding all those principles is this. God, and therefore his people, is the protector of and preserver of real life. So yes, God is pro-life. But he is so extremely pro-life that it would make all political parties blush. Yes, God cares about life at conception because he created the sperm and he created the egg and he creates the womb. And he cares about abortion because abortion takes life. But, actually I should say but, and God cares about the the woman who is pregnant. And God cares about the unbelievable hurdles that perhaps unwed mom will have to overcome as a single parent. And so too must we. And God cares about the mother who has had an abortion. And so too must we. And anything that degrades or anything that robs the dignity of life, we have to care about. We have to push against. And there are a thousand different directions you could go with this. But the God of abundant life is opposed to anything that degrades life. And God is saying, if you worship me, you start being about that as well. So look, here's my best shot at trying to apply it to where we are at Ole Miss. If you are a Christian, you have to care about Racism. You have to care about sexism. You have to care about all the isms, isms, whatever. Because those degrade life. Look, you may be limited in what you can do. It may be complicated what the solution looks like. But not caring is not an option. And I know that's a double negative, all right? But like, there is... There's an insane amount of pressuring of women on this campus to fit into a sexual mold. There's a system that's at work, and it's degrading. And if you're a Christian, you have to care about that. You need to grieve about that and care and push back. And the sexual aggression, like the jokes, and the treating of females as objects of pleasure... It's not funny. It should make you weep. And there's a call to use your power to protect, to serve, to guard, to help someone flourish, not degrade. If any organization that you're a part of has a system that dehumanizes someone, you can't be okay with that. You can't. And so this really is saying, like, Christians... You, cannot, you can't write off awkward people. You can't write off the weak. You can't shrug off systematic and institutional oppression because the worship of God, the God of life, means that you see death everywhere and you want to see it push back. And I don't know if that felt like a tangent to you. I, I, I hope it wasn't like getting on some, some soapbox. I'm with you in it. I'm, I'm repenting of all the ways that I see racism in my life. I see sexism. We've got to lean in together. But it's not, a, it's not a tangent because of this. If your religious system that you've created involves behaviors of worship like Bible reading and quiet times and Bible memory and church attendance, all that stuff is good. But those things are not aligning you with Jesus. 
who is the protector and guarder of life and therefore is not pushing you to care about those things, I'm telling you it's false worship. It just is. You've made a God in your own image that's made you comfortable. But it's not the God of life. So idolatry leads to death. True worship leads to Jesus who is life, which breeds a reverence and respect for all life. So how does true worship happen? I'll be quick here. I I think this is a very sobering and humbling passage, a lot more than I thought it would be. Because look, look, whether you've had an abortion, whether you've encouraged someone to do that, whether you've been silent while entire races and classes of people suffer loss of life, or whether you've just written somebody off because of their appearance, the truth is we all have blood on our hands. All of us. We're all idolaters. There isn't a person in this room who has loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. We're all guilty. Which means we all deserve to be cut off. Because to choose something besides God is to choose death because he's life. But here's the good news. After for thousands of years drilling into the heads of his people, do not eat blood, do not consume blood, do not consume that which is death. You know what happens? This is what Thomas read for us. The true tabernacle, Jesus, shows up in the flesh. And in John 6, here's what he says to a crowd. And this would have sounded so bizarre. He says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. That sounds weird. And, you, and sometimes I think we forget how strange that would have sound. But listen to what Jesus is saying. The only way that you can eat flesh and drink blood is if death has occurred, right? And Jesus is saying, you must eat my flesh, drink my blood. Jesus is saying the key to worshiping the real God is to feast on me, which is my death. My death for you. Because this clearest expression of who God is, the, most, the clearest expression of his, of his manifestation is Jesus on the cross. That's what God looks like. God taking death. God being cut off. God losing his life. Because he loves you so much. Jesus is saying the key is to feast on my grace and take it inside of you. And I will make you alive. There's an illustration I heard. Uh, you can know that's true because I've never read this book. It's called Jesus Through uh, Middle Eastern Eyes. Um, true story. In the cell end. Um, 1980s, um, the Jordan King, Hussein bin Talal. Um, there was a group of people uh, in Jordan that were deeply unsatisfied with, uh, with his kingship. And actually, they, were, they had gotten together uh, and some of, the, some of, his, uh, some of even uh, his military, and they decided they were going to overthrow him and kill him. Well, on that night, some of his secret room uh, police informed the king about the plan that was going on in this building. Uh, and so the security officers, uh, officers actually requested to the king that they could go to that building, surround it, and arrest all those who were planning on killing him. After a somber pause, uh, the king refused, and he said, bring me a helicopter. And so a helicopter was brought, 
He went to the he went to the building, landed on the flat roof where uh, where where all the military people were planning his uh, the coup and his death. And here's what he told the pilot. He said, "If you hear gunshots, fly away at once without me." And so unarmed, the king walks down two flights of stairs. He appears in the room where the plotters were were meeting to kill him. And here's what he said. He said, gentlemen, it's come to my attention that you're meeting tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country, and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart, the country will be plunged into civil war, and tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There's no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. You know what happened? There was stunned silence. And then one of the rebels rushed forward, dropped on his knees, and kissed the king's hand and pledged his loyalty for life. Why? Because their king said, let me die. Let me me absorb the death so that you can live. And it changed him. And when you feed on Christ and his death for you and his grace, it changes you. It changes what you love. It makes you bow down and kiss the the hand of the king and say, I will give up things to protect life. I I will guard those who are being degraded because you have walked into the wrath of God in my place so that I can live. And it's a grace that will never run out. Why don't you come and feast on Jesus tonight? He still gives you a ritual. It's called the Lord's Supper. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. Take and eat. Take Jesus within you. Let's pray.